Hi everyone, it's Chelsea. In this episode, we have an occupational therapist named Katie as our guest. You're probably wondering, what does OT have to do with selective mutism? Stay tuned to find out how occupational therapists can help with selective mutism and sensory processing disorder. I apologize in advance for the audio. I promise we'll try to do better in future episodes. And here's the episode. Welcome to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism Podcast. I'm Chelsea. And I'm Anne, Chelsea's mom. And today we have another special guest. Her name is Katie. She is a pediatric licensed occupational therapist. Uh, She actually reached out to us on Facebook, which is really cool. So if you're also a professional who works with SM or you just want to share your story, you can email us or find us on social media. And our email is outloudsmpodcast at gmail.com. Or they could visit your new website that you just put up. Outloudsm.com. <laughs> and the email's on there, too. Yes. Okay. So welcome, Katie. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for reaching out to us. That's great. But we just had a conversation about how important it is to have, like, an inter- interdisciplinary um, approach to treating SM. Mm-hmm. Um, like, having people from all different backgrounds. Right, so, sure, so OT will yeah. be great. Um, Absolutely. Another piece of the puzzle. You want to start off first just by telling the listeners like what OT stands for and what it is? Absolutely. So um, OT stands for occupational therapy. Um, and I ended up finding y'all's podcast because I had I was looking for more information um, on selective mutism. And so it just seems, you know, like returning the favor for all the people that are like, what the heck is OT? Because I'm sure a lot of people are like, what the heck is SM? So um, (laughs) we um, work with occupations and I'm going to define that a little bit differently um, as anything that occupies your time. So if you think about your job, um, the job of being you, so that's your work as well as you, you know, doing your self-care in the morning, as well as feeding yourself, all the things you do for leisure. Um, so for our kiddos, um, in the pediatric setting, it's still their self-care, it's their play is their main occupation. They don't have a good job. Um, so that's how we define occupation. Um, and so with OT as that type of therapy, we're using those meaningful occupations to build the skills needed to do them, basically making it really meaningful. We're working on, you know, the motor skills, in play to work on um, those little bits of those things that are important to us. Um, And it just really makes a huge difference, especially in the pediatric population. You really have to make it meaningful for them or they're not going to do it. (laughs) Yeah, part of Chelsea's, um, I don't know if you were actually diagnosed yet or not, but we did go to a, it was actually Northeast Rehab locally, and they did an evaluation on Chelsea. Um, And I don't think she was, I don't remember her talking at the evaluation. But I, all I really remember is they had her on a swing. Uh, that was one thing. And the only other thing I really remember is they had a mirror and they had shaving cream all over it and they wanted to try to get her to- I remember that vivid Touch the shaving cream. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember from the yeah. assessment. So I did have a lot of sensory processing issues as a kid. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. like, I don't know if there's, that's one of my questions coming up. So we can get into that later, but. I guess what, I guess we haven't asked much about you, like what is your background, what kind of settings, like have you worked in and all that? Sure, so I work in outpatient pediatrics, outpatient just meaning, you know, they don't live in-house, not the hospital or rehab center, 
Um, I love pediatrics and um, have done it in more than one place. And I've also done acute care like in the hospital um, because occupational therapy is like that kind of broad, more like an approach to therapy than it is like a specific setting or population. We're all over the place. You have very skilled nursing or in schools or in pediatrics or in um, and therapy, a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. But I really like kids. Um, and I actually started, similar to you, Chelsea, working with kids with autism as a cap worker. Um, mm-hmm. Ended up going back to get my master's. So I've always really liked the pediatric population. Me too. How long have you been in OT? Um, I graduated two years ago. So I've been working for two years and I did my field work before that. Nice. I'm a VCBA and I don't know like what I think it's pretty similar but what kind of education do you need to become an OT and like is there licensing? There's a good question. Um, so now in the U.S. Um, you have to get your bachelor's to not sorry you have to get your master's to be yeah. in an OT um, and then to um, get an OTA you can get an associate's degree so then that's the OT assistant, and there's, I can give you guys some links to that, because I don't want to get that wrong, because I don't really yeah, that's okay. too much about that, um, but there are people that used to get just their bachelor's, so there are definitely practitioners out there who, you know, are still really amazing, and have a lot of experience that have only their bachelor's. Okay, sounds kind of like nursing, how, you know, back a lot, initially, about like two-year programs, and then went to the four-year programs, and now there's a lot of you know, mix match or going back to two years. So sure. And I think there's talk about the doing um the doctorate, the OD doctorate, because that's what PT is doing. It's about the uh-huh. and and that's something that may or may not happen in the next like decade. So it's it's a more kind of progression for the education there. Okay. Now have you actually had the opportunity, Katie, to work with child children with uh, SM or selective mutism? I have I had my first kiddo with SM and that's I found the podcast in the first place because I was like, I know very little about it and um, I just wanted as much information as I could. Um, so I picked him up in February of this year, I think, um, and asking around what I obviously what I do for most of my kids when I need um, some advice, like with my mentors and I ask them, like, hey, have you had a similar case? Do you have any advice? And most of them that I've asked have probably had like one or two in their careers. Mm-hmm. So it's really just not. Um, not nearly as like a wealth of information as other kind of diagnoses. Yeah, it sounds like it's gotten better it's since getting Chelsea better. was a child, but um, yeah, it's gotten better, but still a lot of people, that's why we're doing the podcast, because just so many people don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Where do you, so you're outpatient, so yep. are your referrals mostly from schools or parents or doctors? Like how do you get your referrals? Our referrals come from doctors, and this is a really tricky question too, um, because it depends on your state. So I live in North Carolina, and we have, you know, we get our referral process through um, through doctors, but then not. I don't know if every state is like that. Um, and then there are school OTs, but they have like a completely different process. That, and I know that it's way over my head. <laughs> but. Okay. So as an OT therapist, would you be the person who actually does the OT assessment or would does somebody else do that piece or how does that work? Yeah. Um, and so I do the assessment. And when I was talking about the OTA, so like if we had those, we don't have those at my clinic, but they are those, those be your treating therapists, whereas only OTs would do the assessment. So 
OTs can do assessment and treatment, whereas the OTAs can do um, just treatment. Yes, I asked um, our listeners some questions, like to give us some questions about like, what do you know about OT? Is your kid in OT? And I did a poll on Instagram and we got four yeses and 20 no's. So I found that pretty interesting. That's surprising. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was never in OT, but I definitely had some sensory issues. So I'm kind of wondering like, what is the role of an OT in the treatment of someone with SM? Right. Um, that's a great question. I remember in one of the podcasts, it was like a really high number um, that you guys said there was of SM kids that had sensory processing disorders. Yeah. It's a huge amount. Um, and so, you know, OTs are going to be your, your people that are your go-to sensory processing issues. Um, and that's not to say that we can't do a wealth of other things, um, you know, work on motor skills and vision processing and all these other things. Um, but I would say probably the most likely thing that you would see is for that sensory processing, just because of um, the overlap. And then um, working on, you know, those self-regulation pieces and um, similar to psych and parallel well with psych resources to help us um, with that whole picture. I know that we talked a little bit, or you guys have talked a bit, um, how it's not just about the speech part of it. So obviously we're not going to work on just speech, but having them be regulated enough and, um, you know, for sensory issues and then for social emotional issues, having them regulated enough to do those other things that they need to do, like, or interact in different settings. And when you say regulated, what do you mean? (laughs) So, really good question. So, sensory processing disorder, um, basically, sensation happens to all of us all the time. Like every second you're processing just a ton of sensory input. So it makes sense that there can be kind of a mismatch where like things can kind of, you know, get wonky. This is my scientific thing in the process. Um, So basically um, we all process it at different levels and we have different behaviors that have to deal with our sensation. So um, I'm going to think about bias and repeaters. We will feel too much, not enough, or just right. And so for the kids with SM, you're probably going to see the kids that are like, too much about touch processing. Like they would never touch shaving cream. They hate the denim specifically, mm-hmm. like fur and clothes, like things, are, things that should feel just right. So most people feel itchy or stretchy or just kind of like just a noxious input. Um, they might feel that about um, auditory processing. Um, fluid flushing is one I see a lot. Like hand covers, yep. blenders, vacuums, those like low frequency sounds. It's like when they're covering their ears, things like that. And so, of course, because you and I all have our little things that we like, we like more of this and less of this, and every sense is different, too, and every person is different. Mm-hmm. But what we see that disorder is when they, it's interfering with their function. If they can't participate in our class, if they're too scared of touching glue, like they're terrified of it, or if they can't go use the bathroom and they have those toileting issues, like that's when we see that disorder, is when they're getting, it's getting in the way of their function. Um, and so that's what I mean by dysregulated, which is like, you're not in that happy, just right spot for where we need to be in order to do the things that make it right. Yeah. Actually, in researching to, for tonight, I actually didn't realize, you know, sensory integration and what a wide umbrella that is. 
like we've talked about, I think mostly um, like clothing, the clothing is kind of mm-hmm. the, the most common one I think of. Maybe that's because that's what we experienced with Chelsea. A lot with toileting too. Yeah. And but sometimes I didn't really connect that to sensory. I think for mm-hmm. me it was, um, I don't know, just being afraid. Like as a mom, I'm thinking oh. she's afraid, but I didn't make the connection with a lot of things mm-hmm. until tonight that it's actually sensory input. Yes, absolutely. And I think as in the behavior aspect of it, it's like all behavior means something. Um, and it, I think a lot of it looks like behavior where it's like my kid just doesn't want to put on anything I give them because they're mad at me or like not even, it just becomes a very complex thing where they become people or be they become avoidant of things and it seems like behavior like they're being resistant or something like that and they really just they might not even know that there's a problem um they might just think it's always felt that way and they can't really explain it um so it's just a very complex kind of experience and they're just dealing with it the best way that they know how Mm -hmm. i noticed that when i have like heightened anxiety that textures and sounds like things like that bother me more than if I wasn't feeling anxious so it's Mm -hmm. kind of like you get overstimulated by certain combinations of things for sure and that's kind of where that whole regulated piece is it's like I I kind of describe it as like a drop in the bucket where you know we have sensation that can kind of be kind of like triggering and then if we have anxiety on top of that it's also kind of triggering and when it's all heightened it's just like too much um Mm -hmm. the big picture it's like thinking about if you watched a horror movie and you're at like afterwards, it's like a windy night and you hear everything and mm-hmm. you're at like, you're just already so up here that all those sounds you probably heard a million times are just like, whoa. Uh, oh yeah, that's it, a great it's, metaphor. It, it's just another drop in the bucket that you would not have thought about on the other day. And so for our kiddos that are just already so like at this top like notch of their, you know, bucket, Mm-hmm. every little thing on how it makes a huge difference yeah that makes sense so what would a evaluation and ot eval actually look like like what what types of things i like the only things i remember is chelsea's swinging and then the shaving <laughs> cream on the mirror what other types of things would you do in an assessment so um for a kiddo who's you know we're looking at some good processing issues those would be you know good things to start with um I would, you know, generally, I, I have a test that I usually give called a sensory, um, it's a sensory processing kind of like overview, and it breaks down the different senses, and so it has those questions like, do your, does your child, can they get their hands messy, and it's usually like always or never, and then you see, sometimes you see those kids that are always, 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 and that really, um, that makes sense with, with FM in my mind. Um, but it, it asks you those questions and then it breaks down for all the senses, auditory, you know, oral sensory as well. There's food textures, those kids that have strong preferences that like never try new foods, things like that. Um, so with the swing, they're going to be looking at that. We have like three extra senses. One of them is the vestibular sense, which is where, you know, the liquid in our ears that tells us where we are in space. Um, and so the other end of the sensory processing spectrum, most of the kids in FM are going to be those really highly sensitive kids that you guys talked about last time. And they have those avoidant behaviors because they're just, everything's too much. They're going to try and shut it down. And then you have the kids on the opposite end, which are going to be your kids that are more like on the autism spectrum where everything's not enough. They mm-hmm. are, they're spinning, they're flapping, they are, they're, you know, they're fascinated by the spinning fan. Like it's just not enough. And mm-hmm. so um, that test it kind of 
give Jeff a good picture for like the whole day and then they kind of enjoy um, the where they fall on the symmetry kind of. Right. So that one is really helpful for me. And then usually we just try and make it as, as engaging as possible for the kiddo to see how they kind of naturally play. Um, because as good as, you know, we always say that standardized vowels are great because they are standardized. They tell us, you know, they can help us with norms with their peers to see how they're doing and everything. Evidence is great. But then it's also just, it's just saying how good your kid is at taking something standardized as well. So that's helpful, but it, it should be always balanced out with some clinical observations of like, hey, this is how they actually play. And this is what I can see if they're not, you know, doing just this paper text or whatever else. Right. You're actually jogging my memory because I do, now that you're speaking, I do remember we were sitting at a little table and for the first half or at least half of it was me answering questions, I think. Mm -hmm. And then they took Chelsea off to go do the eval. Mm -hmm. So it kind of made me remember <laughs> so long time ago. Mm -hmm. So what does the process look like? Like, do, are you making goals or um, what happens after assessment, I guess? Mm. That's a good question. Um, so do you make goals um we try and have them be as kind of diverse as possible to address you know all of our areas so usually like something to do with self-care something to do with fine motor gross motor or sensory just kind of the whole big picture because as you guys have talked about it's never just the one thing like kids that have sensory issues usually have um, limitations in their self-care or whether it's foods or cleaning or something like that um they usually have limitations in um their ability to play um because you think about how any sensory kid not just um someone with sm it's just if they're more fearful they're less likely to seek out experiences and to have develop their skills um and then usually we do other kinds of goals for some kind of social or um, emotional regulation too so we write goals um and we do them for six months basically all of the goals are written like they're going to do this task because it's going to work on this skill which is basically our whole you know spiel with occupation we're like we're working on this and because of that it's gonna like for example we're going to be able to button things because we need that for self-care but that also will show us that we're able to um, use our eyes correctly to, to match up the holes as well as our fine motor skills to have this plan and use our fingers and things like that. So it's always we're going to do this meaningful, important thing and it's going to show that we can do this. So as far as like for fine motor skills, like would you do, I mean, what could you give? I'm thinking like handwriting. So a child that has like poor penmanship or control of the pencil, um, you know, what would you recommend? What, what can OT do for, for like fine motor skills like that? Yeah, so um, we do a lot of handwriting. I think that's kind of one of the things that school teams like get a lot of for sure. Um, it kind of depends on what's going on. Um, I see, I have a lot of kids with cerebral palsy um, and that's gonna be really different than a kid who has just more sensory issues. Um, so cerebral palsy, you can definitely, um, a lot of them have tremoring and we do like adaptive things like have weights um, for their, like wrist weights for their hands um, or, you know, using any kind of splinting or bracing for things that are more neuro in that um, way. But for kids with sensory issues, like as I was saying, when they kind of are avoidant of things, um, they just aren't as developed. And 
um, recent experiences they might have. So they might just benefit from just getting like some deep pressure before they do any kind of writing class. Mm -hmm. Some kids that they don't, those kids that have like not enough for what's called the proprioceptive sense, they just need a lot of pressure. They need a lot of heavy work. They need a lot of, they just need a lot of input to know where they are in space. Those are the kids that like, they break all their crayons. Mm -hmm. They fight yeah. too hard. They, they bump into stuff. They, um, those, those kinds of kids. And sometimes they just really need um, some like kind of movement built into their day to kind of have them be like, okay, I'm grounded. I know where I am. And now I'm ready to, to use this amount of pressure or mm -hmm. to sit in my chair and be stable enough to do that. Um, I think a lot of those fine skills, it's easy for us to say like, um, it's going well, it's not going well, because we can see the output, you can see right. how it's writing, but a lot of it comes from, are we able to do those other skills? Are, can we sit upright? Can we like keep our our shoulder and our arm stable enough to write? Things like that. It's funny you say that. I do remember them telling me um, to have Chelsea help carry in the groceries. Yes. The weight. <laughs> and yes. I have a weighted blanket now and I love it. Like I love the sensory input of weight on me. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that from going to the dentist when they do x-rays, they put the weighted vest on you. And I was like, I love this. Don't take it off. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I tell kids to do heavy work all the time because it's just, it's, they just, some kids, they just need so much pressure. And then that's something that would be a great, you know, occupation. It's helping your mom. It's built into your day. And that could be so much more meaningful to a kid instead of, you know, doing mm. bicep curls or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and that's kind of where we come from is there's a lot of opportunities for us to build it into your routine and make it meaningful for you instead of it just be, you know, something that you're not going to do. <laughs> um, someone asked me, so people are seem a little confused, or at least the people who contacted me about what, like, why would an OT be involved in selective mutism, which they're probably thinking about more the speaking um, part of it. So there, I got a question, like, what kind of signs should we look for to know that we need an OT? I think it comes down to, you know, one of our favorite words in OT is, it, are they functional? It's when we're talking about sensory processing, um, everyone has different ways they process sensory, but if it's getting in the way of them doing the things they need to do, that's when I would say, okay, there's something going on. And, you know, for kids with SM, I think it's usually going to be... Um, the sensory processing as a whole, mm -hmm. but as far as uh, working on just speaking, we're obviously not going to do that. But you know, as I was talking about with the, the drops in the bucket, I think helping that regulation in general can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. And a lot of kiddos um, that just need a lot of it is strategies and just giving them kind of validation that like, hey, you know, bringing this awareness to that process things differently. Everyone's brain is different, and that it's okay that you feel that way. And that giving them the best tools to deal with it can be really powerful, even if it's like you see the kid like six times or something like that. It doesn't have to be this whole long thing. Whereas like psych will probably be a much longer journey if it's just giving them some tools and some self-confidence usually. Could that look like um, coping skills? That might be more psych, but like deep breathing and things like that? It definitely can be. Um, and we, I love working with psych too. And as part of that big interprofessional team, um, just, you know, using what they're using too and having it be part of what, whatever we're doing, because if we're doing play, that might be a, you know, a great time to use those skills and um, 
work it into whatever it is that's important to them. They can easily get frustrated, you know, working on those self-care skills that we're doing. So I love doing that. I know as a parent too, like looking back now, you know, Chelsea, I think the easy, the easier ones to pick up on as a parent are like the, the diet restrictions, dietary restrictions. She had a very limited list of food she would eat because they were slimy or mushy or whatever. And, and then the other easy one that I think is the clothing, like it's scratchy. It's, and know, like self-care though, like think about hair brushing, hair and brushing, like wiping after going to the toilet. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think some of the tougher ones, which I didn't really pick up on, I think at the time, but looking back are things like activity wise, like riding a bike, jump rope, catching a ball. She avoided those things. But a lot of it is perfectionism because you don't want True. to fail. Yeah. But a lot of it looking back was you were very, um, I don't want to say uncoordinated. I still am, but it's probably <laughs> because I never... Right, right. To so learn it's kind them. of a, yeah. But it's a tougher one to pick up on. Yeah, like, that's true. Is there something occupational wise going on? Maybe. Or is it, you know, <laughs> right? Because it could be so many other things too. Right, and that's what I love about my job because everyone's just, you know, this collection of experiences and preferences and behaviors and all, and it's you know, kind of teasing it all apart and figuring out like what's going on basically, yeah. and. So many kids, you know, are, well, kids are, kids are brilliant. I say this all the time. Like kids are really smart and they are really good at doing things they're good at mm -hmm. and saying, doing things they're good at and being adaptive. Like they, they will find the easiest way to do something. And it's really, um, really amazing. Mm -hmm. And it really, they do those things because they work. Like they are avoidant because it works. They do they have these behaviors because it keeps them safe or what they feel is safe. So um, they're really good at it. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think some of it, um, it just isn't functional. And that's kind of where we come in. And I think, you know, selective mutism kids, especially, I think, at least with Chels, because they're so quiet, they take in everything that's going around, you know, going on around them. Mm -hmm. But you don't um, learn much through experience, like doing. True. Because you're... Observing. Avoiding. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of a great part of that question of like, well, when do we need OT? Because the kids that, you know, the kids that have SM are probably not going to be the kids that are disrupting your class, you know? Right. It's on the other side of the sensory kind of, you know, spectrum are going to be the kids, the seekers that are like right. trying to input all the time are going to be up out of their chairs. They're going to be like making noise and things like that. And so those are the kids that usually get the attention like, okay, we need something. But the kids, on the other side, even though they're not being disruptive or whatever, they still have those needs too, because they're not getting the optimal development um, and those opportunities that they could. I think teachers, you know, are so important with selective mutism and picking up uh, things for ki on kids with SM. In a classroom, we're always trying to like tease out things for the teachers, like tips and things. And I don't know. So if you have a child, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think as a teacher's perspective, because you're right, it wouldn't be the kids that are acting up, it's those other kids, maybe that you know have selective mutism. Um, what could you say to teachers, maybe about their uh, tone of voice, or maybe their body mannerisms, like how to maybe best be effective with a child with selective mutism? For sure. Um, I think you guys are definitely the experts on SM, and I definitely have loved the, the podcast you guys have done about like tips for teachers and like other ways to 
um, that have worked for you all in the past and things like that. I think just as a good general approach for it is um, what we call in OT the just right challenge. Um, so it's giving them enough support that they feel confident and successful, but not so much that they are, they're almost hampered by like their craft. Mm. So it's finding that like exact right amount where they're in the middle. And so if it's for, you know, one kid's accommodation to be those forced choice questions, um, cause that would be a step up from mm-hmm. just nodding your head, but then another kid like that might not be challenging. So you would have to have them fill in the blank or read whatever they wrote down, something like that. So I think it's more just about the general approach for teaching, um, and finding that just right challenge. That makes sense. I never really thought about that either. So as far as like a 504 would go or like an IEP thing, do you often get involved in that as an occupational therapist? Because it actually would be a big chunk of, you know, it has a big impact on. It covers a lot. Yeah. yeah. Kids learning and their behavior in the classroom and that. Do you ever get, you know, ask for any input as far as 504s or IEPs go? So um, OTs in the school, they are, mm. all the things that OTs in school do is under that IEP or 504 umbrella. Um, and so I work with a lot of kids that also get school OT and they have IEPs and whatnot. Um, but as a private practitioner, I don't. Um, and I think that was kind of someone asked about um, how it would look like in the classroom. And um, you would just have to get, <laughs> this is so complicated. In North Carolina, I know for sure, my friend, my one of my good friends, I had to ask her because I was like, I don't really know how school OT works. Um, but for North Carolina, they already have to have special ed and then they can get OT as a related service. Yeah. Um, and then for a 504, it's something a little bit different, but I think for, okay, with SM, they would at the most probably get um, like supports where someone would come in, they would push in and like say, hey, why don't you try this with your teacher, try this, but it wouldn't be that weekly, whatever that you would get in um, private practice. Right, that makes sense. Sometimes I forget because, you know, if you do private school, not all schools have the same services. So, yeah. right, unless you're in that um, special, ed. special ed or whatever, you really don't even know it exists probably. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's so different state to state. I know that people up north, like I've had kids that have been relocated from New York and they have really different services provided up there than they do down here. So it's really different state to state also. If a kid doesn't get OT in school, but they want an occupational therapist, how would they get one involved? In North Carolina, they would have to go to an MD um, and get a referral that way. I feel like I've gotten some from like a psychologist that might work, but 99% of the time it's from an MD. I'm just trying to get a better picture. I know, I feel like OTs just cover so much ground that it's hard to pinpoint like one thing, but I'm trying to think, like, what about, how would you help with, like, toileting? Like, say an SM kid at school is, like, not using the bathroom at all, and part of it's, they're not asking, but another part of it is it's, like, loud in there, and the lights are crazy, and they don't like the hand dryers. And the flushing of the toilet. Yeah, they don't like getting soap on their hands. Like, what do you do in that situation? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, other people might be next to you. For sure. Um, I do a ton of toileting with a lot of my kids. A lot of the kids that have issues with textures really don't like, like wiping is really hard. Um, that's just a struggle. Um, and so we do kind of a lot of general things to address um, that 
tactile defensiveness is what it's called, specifically for touch, we're like really um, avoidant and really just process that as kind of a nasty input. Um, mm-hmm. So I know you guys talked about um, Will Barker brushing. I think, did you do that? Yeah. Yes. I was gonna bring it up, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that is one that I do a lot for my um, kiddos with tactile defensiveness. Um, and it is just a way for us to give like a systematic input all over the body and the protocol is it's supposed to be every two hours. So it's very regular input. Um, I know it's it's a lot. Um, but every two hours, you basically get this stiff brush that um, goes up and down your arms and your back and then your leg. Um, and then it's followed by joint compressions, which is that deep pressure input. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, the theory behind sensory integration is that we have these sensory experiences um, and then um, our brain can organize them so that we can, you know, modulate them appropriately in the future. And so by giving that really regular input that we can already know is coming, we're organized and ready to perhaps for mm-hmm. that. And we can basically practice it and eventually um, it's not a big deal anymore. Exposure, yeah. It's, yeah, it is. It's, it's exposure, but like the sensory version. Right. Uh, so I do that a lot with kids that have that tactile offensiveness. And just because um, it's, you know, you think, well, now they're just going to be better at tolerating brushes. Um, mm-hmm. But it does, you know, because your brain is organizing it and creating, you know, the pathways for us to take on this new um, input, it, you should see, um, hopefully, it just get better with all those textures that they have coming to us. Yeah, they sent me home with a brush and oh, I just remember them saying, here, just, you know, take this home at bath time, just basically wash her with this. And we tried it one time, she didn't like it. And so that was it. (laughs) I know that um, it's kind of controversial. Um, Just there's not a lot of evidence with it. But I know that like, it's really hit or miss. Like some kids, it's a really good match and some kids it's not. Um, And I think part of it is that this like hot word sensory, where it's like, if you have the kids that are the seekers, like, and they love input, it's like, well, this is getting them more revved up, you know, um, whereas the kids that are defensive, like, um, it could be really helpful, and it's a kind of about how much pressure you use, because if you do it really lightly, it feels kind of like, tickly, yeah, yeah, exactly, so make, which would be really bad, it would, it would feel kind of gross, um, so it's definitely good about, you know, parent indication is super important on that one. So, like, would you ever, like, practice the bathroom routine, or, like, try to get kids used to certain inputs like the sounds and stuff for sure i recently took i have a kid who's very sound sensitive because he's on the autism spectrum and we went into the bathroom and like turn the fan on and then turn the fan off mm-hmm. and turn on turn off and then we like flush the toilet a lot mm-hmm. um and you know to make it part of play as an occupation mm-hmm. i like to um like put food coloring in the toilet oh. i put like red and yellow in there and then they get to flash and like i made orange and things oh. like that so it's like it's the exposure. Yeah, you know, this code is super scary for a lot of kids. So um, parents out there, don't be, you know, you're not alone for sure. <laughs> I love the food coloring idea. The only thing is it makes me worry that some kids would like start putting other stuff in the toilet because I <laughs> have had clients with autism that 
it just <laughs> adds on more layers. For sure. I totally, I totally feel you. Um, and my kiddo is, was nonverbal. So I told mom, dad, I was like, we did this. I said it was okay. You know, <laughs> so if it happens at home, don't get him in trouble. <laughs> but there are, you know, I know we're sort of wrapping up here. We're getting near the end, but there's so much, I, I think at least there's so much more out there now than there was back then. Like the weighted blankets, you can mm -hmm. buy them everywhere. Like Walmart, Amazon, everyone's got the weighted blankets. Um, aromatherapy. I know some people use like aromatherapy for relaxing and calming, mm -hmm. like even that, but I don't remember ever having aromatherapy when you were I little. Know, it's kind of a new fad. Yeah. yeah. So I just think there's a lot, um, you know, a lot out there now that wasn't out there before. Yeah. I think that's really great. I do. I do love that. It's so readily available and talked about and, you know, as long as we approach it with that kind of holistic approach that every kid is different and that everyone might have different needs, you know, um, mm -hmm. just because your kid has sensory issues doesn't mean that they're going to allow weighted blankets. Yeah. Well, it would click really well with and some people will just absolutely hate it. Yes. So um, it is awesome that they're readily available just as long as you're, you know, guided by a therapist or something um, mm. to make the right choices for your kid. Carrie, I have like all different ideas, different questions. <laughs> I know we're trying to wrap up, but like with food, like picky eaters, mm. I come across this a lot as a BCBA as well. And it's hard to like, you don't want to force kids to eat new foods, but you, cause it makes it aversive, but how do you get them to expand on their diet? Like if they're not trying different textures. So my answer for everything is play. Um, <laughs> I do a lot of play with foods. Um, and it's similar with textures. I do a lot of like food painting. Um, I like have kids that, you know, will crush their like berries and paint with it. We'll like take our cars and drive it through our mashed potatoes. Cause it's like the first step is tolerating the sight of our food. Um, can we, cause you get those kids that you put in front of them that are already like, ah. So that's the first step. And then, you know, being able to tolerate the smell of it um, and kind of feeling those little blocks of the just right challenge. Can the kid tolerate touching it if it's a finger food and then bringing it to their mouth and like touching it to their lips. Like those little blocks too. So, you know, just taking it really slow and then making it play um, something that's meaningful for them instead of just the chore that they already really don't like. Yeah. How long, Katie, like what would, I know everyone's different where you keep saying that, but you just described like that process like how, what's a typical, I mean, do kids progress through those stages, like from beginning to end or like what would a normal, I mean, a, you know, a month, a year? It is super hard to say. I know that like a lot of literature for sensory integration in general, for that just whole picture, whatever's going on is, is the literature is like one to two years usually for like the whole picture, like beginning to end. Um, but it's really, you know, it's so kid to kid. Right. And, and what I really like to see, like my favorite part of my job is if you just get them starting just like the littlest bit and they get that confidence, they get, you know, a little bit of success in them and then they do it by themselves. They, they feel confident to get those sensory experiences and then they are putting themselves out there and then they're developing the skills on their own and then you just sit back and say like, okay, I'm here if you need me. But that's like what I really, really love. Um, so hopefully, you know, you'll just get them started and they can figure out development. I think part of it is trying anything new can be really aversive for some kids. Like, they're like, this is what is safe and this is what I don't like. And if you can get them to try at least one new thing, 
then they're less afraid of all the other. And do things. you use rewards during that process? Um, it can be. Uh, sometimes with with food, I'll you know if if they're tolerating like they're tolerating eating the food, I'll kind of use a preferred food and then a non-preferred food, and we'll switch back and forth with them. But I think play in itself is kind of rewarding for those lower stages where it's like, this is kind of funny and um, it's odd. It's another thing where you have to tell mom, it's okay, we can play with the food. I told them. I was going to say, I'm sure a lot of parents yeah. are like, why are you teaching him to play with his food? Exactly. But I know earlier you mentioned um, that you can work on like social goals. So I'm one, that would probably be related for someone with SM. I'm wondering what kind of social things you work on. Sure. With our kiddos, and it's hard right now with COVID, but we have a really great gym space. And one of the best things is like, if you have, if I have a client and my colleague also has a client and they're playing together, that's when you see like the most natural play. Because right. when a kid plays with you as an adult, like, you know, it's it's more natural than, you know, you giving them a test to do. But when they really get to play with each other, that's when you see the most authentic play. Mm -hmm. um, and so goals for kiddos like that, like, I had a kid, he wasn't on the spectrum, but we did have some anxiety about approaching his goal. And sometimes one of the things we started with, um, I was saying, oh, I forgot this thing in the gym. We have to go get it. So we like walked into the gym and got our shovel or whatever it was. And he walked in and he looked at everyone and then he walked out. So that was like our first little exposure mm -hmm. there. And so it's part of a bigger picture. It's never gonna be us walking in and out of the gym over and over, but um, just making it part of, part of play as our bigger goal yeah is there anything else you wanted to bring up that we didn't cover or like frequently asked questions you get a lot as an OT not well I mean in general I think it's usually like what is OT um but I think that's kind of why I felt so you know um inspired to reach out to you guys because we are super diverse um population I feel like most people that have experience with OT they're either a teacher or they've had someone who's um, like been in skilled nursing or in the hospital and like, oh, I got OT with PT. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of, you know, what inspires me as a practitioner is just to be a good advocate for our profession. And yeah, we're, we're out there, we do lots of things. So <laughs> if you have any questions, I feel like um, I'd love to answer them because I know that I do have a lot of parents that really just, they're already at my office and they still don't know what we do. That's great. Yeah, I'm so glad you reached out. I don't think yeah. I would have thought to look for an OT as a guest, but I'm glad that you reached out. Yeah. Do you think, um, I got one more question here for you, just thinking out loud, you know, when I was getting ready for this, um, maybe children that are sensory, have sensory integration issues, do you question at all or do you find that the parents also maybe had issues with sensory integration? I don't know. I I mean, I definitely would believe that because I think, you know, everyone has their own issues. Um, I don't feel like I see a huge correlation between kids that have it or not, or maybe they work through it. But I think mm. that's part of it is, um, is remembering that as a kid, you learned a lot by failure. And <laughs> you learned a lot by trying new things and not liking them and then trying them again and then being okay or like having things go wrong. and. And I think we forget that as an adult because we want we want our kids to be safe and all, but that's just how we learn. Um, and for those kiddos that you know are really avoidant and all, it's really easy to go with them and say, okay, like I know that's scary, we don't have to do it. Um, so I think some of it is just letting your kids fail. <laughs> but obviously, um, 
that's part of the just right challenge that we get with OT is that them having enough of a challenge that they don't feel just devastated, but enough that they're still challenged and that they mm. are learning and growing and developing. I was just thinking, you know, in reading, the reason I'm asking that question is so, so I'm not a great swimmer and never have been, but basically because I'm fearful of the water. But the reason is because I always want to be able to touch the bottom. So that's like one of the mm. things I have. You know, I, I could name many other, but let's move on to my husband. <laughs> Dad's got some sensory yeah, like, issues. He, his biggest thing is like, you know, auditory. He, yes. He can only have one person speaking at a time in the room or he's totally or if, overwhelmed. Like, if the TV's on and you're trying to talk to him, it's like too much. He or, can't do it. He can't take it. Hopefully you won't listen to this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it very well could be like, even if it's not like, you know, a genetic component or whatever else, um, you know, we are definitely really interwoven with our environment. So if you had a parent who had some issues, they might be more, you know, they might have more of a, an eye for seeing you have issues and saying, okay, I know like how that feels. We don't have to do that. Um, whereas another parent who really has no exposure might not be as ready to jump in. Um, or they might not select you to go, you know, play sports if you, if they too were uncoordinated or something like that. Like, I think it, we're definitely interwoven into our environment. So that could definitely be related. Mm. That's okay. interesting. Yeah. 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 I think it really, it's like, you know, we keep saying this too, like it's just multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. Like it needs, it's a team. It's like every, you know, it takes a team. Right. And um, I said this in the episode with this, my speech therapist friend that certain parents are like oh which therapist do I go to for SM is it OT is it speech is it this mm -hmm. it's like you need a team of people working on all the different parts of it it's mm -hmm. not just one professional usually I, yeah it's the team is so important my favorite part about where I work is um we have speech PT and OT and the kiddos that we overlap our services we just like constantly bouncing ideas off of each other and um there's just so many light bulbs of like oh that makes sense from your view and my view and i really like working with um with teachers and with psychologists um and of course the mds i think it's just getting that whole picture is just so important well thank you and um i guess thank you all the other ot's out there that are helping support selective mutism kiddos thank you so much for having me thank yeah. you for reaching out yeah awesome. i know Hi there! If you've made it this far, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to stay updated when new episodes come out.